Okay, here we go. We're, we're rolling. Now, uh, to begin our time today, I, I wanted to uh, tell a brief um, anecdote, I guess. I consider myself a, a fairly handy person. Uh, I, I take every opportunity to do it yourself. My dad was this way, Tracy. Uh, her dad uh, is still this way. First impulse is to fix a problem with the house uh, rather than call a, a professional or with the car, you know, let's see if I can fix it myself, right? Uh, so for both Tracy and me, this is usually our first impulse too, um, to be hands-on with the complex inner workings of the house. However, there's one thing that I'm fairly oblivious about. Uh, when I receive the gas bill or the electric bill, or the water bill, I just pay it, okay? I look at the total and see that it's more or less the same as it was last month, and then I pay it. And if I get to thinking about it too much, I'll start to psych myself out because I think they could probably charge me whatever they wanted to, and, and I would just pay it. I have no idea. How do I go about checking whether or not they're charging me correctly? Moreover, if you've ever looked at, for instance, the electric meter outside your home, it's just a bunch of dials, okay? It's a bunch of dials. I have no idea what the dials mean. I once knew someone who worked for the electric company. I asked them, can you tell me how to read this meter? And they explained it to me in the moment it made sense, but I couldn't tell you how to read it now. I've, I've already forgotten that information has left my mind. Uh, but here, I, and I can go on, J just, I, let's just say that I learned how to read the meter. I'm sure they tell you somewhere online how to read the, the electrical meter. So let's just say I know how to read the meter. How do I know that the meter is properly measuring the amount of electricity that I'm using? How do I verify that, right? For instance, let's just say I turned off every electrical appliance in the house, except for the refrigerator. I looked it up. A refrigerator uses between one and two kilowatts per hour each day. Kilowatt hours, first of all. What is a kilowatt hour? Second, how do I know that the meter outside is accurately measuring one to two kilowatts per hour? How do I know that? How do I verify that? Clearly, I'm the only one bothered by this. You all are looking at me like, just pay the bill, man, right? <laughs> See, I'm starting to sound paranoid, but let's be honest. How many of you are able to double check the accuracy of your utility bill? We're all a bunch of suckers. Not a single one of us raised their hand, but, but what choice do we have? Now, perhaps we could try living off the grid. Uh, generate our own power. I'm not trying to start a cult here. I'm just, this is all for examples. Uh, and you know what? It sounds pretty good to me. I, the idea that I know exactly that I'm not being taken advantage of by some utility company arbitrarily charging me whatever they want, right? Uh, rather than know, okay, I, I generated my own power. So there's nothing, no one to rip me off here, okay? Now, what I'm trying to say is this. I have no confidence in where I stand with the utility companies. I have no reassurance that I'm being fairly treated. Where do I stand? How can I even know for sure? A lot of us have asked similar questions of other entities. For instance, uh, people. Uh, have you ever been in a relationship where you're not sure where you stand? How, how do I know that person loves me back? How do I really know? Where do I, where do I stand as a Christian? Do I have any assurance of where I stand as a Christian? Have you ever gone through a period of life like that when you're, when you're in your faith and you're questioning your faith journey, where you stand? Am I really saved? Can I really know if I'm saved? All right, this is what we're going to talk a little bit about today as we continue our, our series in, in Ephesians. This is the third installment. We're still in chapter one. And at this point, I want to give you a high-level view of what we've discussed in the first two weeks. 
uh, is that as the, the Lord has given us, first of all, the, what we discussed in the first week, he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you remember what that means when we spoke of every spiritual blessing in Christ? Does anyone remember that? What does that mean? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. What do we have in Christ? We have all that we need. We have all that we need to follow and walk with him. We have his inheritance. We have his status. For instance, we have been declared righteous because of the fact that we are in Christ. The Father looks at us not as people who are, uh, uh, well, he, he still sees, obviously we're still going through sanctification, but in terms of judgment, in terms of justification, he sees you. He sees you as righteous as his son, and, and you can't improve upon that. That's what you have in Christ. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Then last week, we, we dabbled in the topic of predestination, that our inheritance, our receiving of every spiritual blessing, wasn't just a reaction by God because, because things were going chaotically, right? No, this was by his design from the foundation of the world that you would receive this inheritance, that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that knowledge should bring you great comfort. It should bring you great comfort that, that it's his plan and it won't be derailed. That doesn't absolve us of our responsibility. However, that's something else we talked about last week, that just because you've been chosen in Christ, that doesn't absolve you from the responsibility. You can now do whatever you want. No, you still have to work out your own salvation with, with fear and trembling, as, as Paul tells us in the book of Philippians. So, so we're moving slowly through the book and we're going to tackle another chunk of verses. We're going to read, uh, picking up about where we les- left off last week, verse 11, and then read through verse 16. And though there are many, many, many things that we could look at uh, in, in this, this, this small chunk of, of, uh, of uh, verses here, uh, we're just going to focus on three things. Uh, so if you haven't already, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, or you can watch and follow along with me up here. This is Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 11 and following. In him we have obtained an inheritance, there it is, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and in your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's our passage for this week. Small chunk, but jam-packed full of stuff. We're going to focus on three things. And these three things are three essential components of your sanctification, of your maturing as a Christian. These three characteristics are three distinct markers that every Christian should have, okay? And as a side note, I was reading through a a Tim Keller sermon on this section of of Scripture, and he said, if you're a Christian, this is one of the best ways to figure out if you're really living consistently with who you say you are. This passage will show what it means to be a Christian. We'll learn it means three things. The three things are truth, hope, and glory. Truth, hope, and glory. Truth, hope, and glory. First of all, it also says, it begins, let's look at the first, first one, truth. This comes courtesy of verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. When he says, you also, you have to remember that this was written to a Gentile audience. So when he says, you also, he's reminded the Gentile believers that they've been incorporated 
uh, along with the Jewish believers as members of the body of Christ. And they also share in this inheritance. What was once thought of as, as being just for the Jew is now open for the Gentile too. So he's telling this crowd, included in this crowd, Jews and Gentiles, he says, you heard the word of truth. Now, let me ask you this. Now, this may seem like a dumb question, but what does Paul mean by heard? When you heard, what does that mean when you heard uh, when you, uh, what does it mean to hear the truth? Let's look at the rest of verse 13. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay? What does it mean to hear the word? Is it enough to hear the word? My, my wife tells me all the time, uh, I, I know you hear me, right? <laughs> but do you hear me? What's the distinction we're making there? Is it enough to, to, to take in the sound physiologically and when you hear the word, it, in and of itself, does that make a difference in and of itself? If you hear it, <laughs> if you hear it, right, did you have something? Can you hear it? How do you hear it in your heart? It's up there. How do you hear it in your heart? Through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's a distinction being made here. It's not enough to just hear. There, there ha, there, there's a spiritual component to this too. Do you, have, do you have something? You look like you're ready to, to speak. Howard. In James. Even the demons believe. that We're, we're, we're talking about the, they hear, they don't believe. What's, what's going on here? Okay, is it possible for someone to hear the gospel even be able to articulate the gospel and yet not believe. Yes, there's people at the university level all the time that could probably tell you a better understanding of, of substitutionary atonement than any of us probably could, and yet they still don't believe. You know, what's going on here? You know, uh, this is, there's something that always bothered me about uh, Luke 24, one of my favorite passages. Uh, Luke 24 is the account that Jesus is coming up on a, he's already resurrected, and he's coming up on a, a group of disciples after he resurrected, and, and he came upon them and he said, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they said, what are we talking about? You must be the only one in Palestine that isn't talking about what we're talking about. We, we, there was Jesus, and we thought he was the one, we thought he was the Messiah, and then he, they killed him, and, and now there's women saying that he, he's risen from the dead, or, or they've seen him, and we, we don't know what to make about all this. And you see, the whole time they're talking to Jesus, they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him. How? That bothered me for so long. How, how can we say, how can we, how can we talk to a skeptic who doesn't believe in our faith? And we say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. How do you know? Well, they saw him. But for the first what? How many minutes? How many hours? They didn't recognize him. Does that, does that make you feel a little uncomfortable? Like, well, what if it wasn't him? Maybe that's why they didn't recognize him. And we're just saying it was him. Okay. Okay, it bothered me for a long time, and I've heard a couple explanations. Well, it was his glorified body. So he probably appeared to be a little different, you know, no wrinkles, perfect hair, right? He's glorified. But if it's his glorified body, is it so different than his 33-year-old body? Is it really that different that they don't recognize him? So Jesus stayed with the disciples a little longer and, and even went to have a meal with them. And none of them recognized him until, until he broke bread with them suddenly they all recognized him. Why is that? A lot of people suggest all kinds of reasons for that. You could say, oh, well, there was something familiar about the way he broke bread. They recognized him from the Passover. Sure, you can say that. 
Or you can say there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. It's not just a physical transaction. There's a spiritual component to all of this too. When he broke bread with them, I don't think there was something familiar about the way he broke bread, but it was at that moment he did something spiritual that he punctuated with the breaking of bread. He opened their eyes. He opened their eyes to who he was. It was not only a physiological transaction, but a spiritual one. It's not enough for you to ingest the words with your eyes and your ear or with your, with your ears and, and then see with your eyes. It's not enough to see something, but he has to open them so that you can see him and so that you can, he has to do that. When you open the book of Isaiah, you can read about Isaiah in, uh, in his calling in chapter 6. And the Lord basically tells Isaiah, I'm going to cleanse you and uh, I'm going to set you apart. And I'm going to send you to preach the word to my people. But guess what? You're going to be the least popular preacher there ever was. No one's going to listen to you. No one. How's that for discouraging? What a great assignment, right? Isaiah 6, 9 uh, to 10 says this. And he said, he's telling this to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Isn't this a great evangelism message right here? And their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's not something you'll find in, a, in, a, in an evangelism tract, right? He's telling him, Isaiah, go preach to them, but, but I'm going to shut their eyes. I'm going to close their ears so they don't understand you. They're going to hear the words coming out of your mouth, but they won't understand. He's telling this because he's giving them over to their sin. He's giving them over to their greatest desires. And when, he, when, he, when they want to chase after other gods, it's as, God, it's as if God is saying, fine, go do it. Go do it. I'm shutting their eyes and their ears and the words of salvation that you speak will now be words of judgment to them. But then we have Christ coming along in the New Testament. And this is what made Jesus, when he gave sight to the blind, that's what, that was, was so meaningful about that. It wasn't just that he was, oh, let's see, let's, let's see what we can do here. Oh, blind, you're, you're, you're suddenly healed. No, this was Christ giving sight where there previously was no sight. Eyes that were previously shut in judgment would now be opened. It was, it was, a, uh, it was symbolic of what was happening on a spiritual level. I'm opening your eyes because now I'm doing this on a spiritual level too. He unlocked something that only Jesus could unlock, right? So, so step number one of being a Christian, receiving the truth, and, and, it's, and, it, and, it's, and it's stated here, believing it. If you believe in the work of Christ and how that makes you right before the Father, that's really good news because that is not an act of your own intelligence. It's a transaction that only occurs because the Spirit of God has done something in you. He's opened your ears, he's opened your eyes, and opened your hearts and minds. If you hear and believe... That's a true mark of your faith, that it's real. But there's more, because as, as Howard told us a moment ago in, in, uh, in James 2, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe and shudder. Okay, but that's step number one, receiving the truth, but there's more. Any comments or thoughts on that so far? Receiving the truth. Ingesting the truth. It's a spiritual transaction. It's not something that you can calculate. It's not something you can develop an Amazon algorithm for. It's something that has to be done spiritually on a spiritual level. All right, this is why Peter led up with this, all talking about predestination and being in Christ, because this is not something you can conjure up on your own, okay? So far, so good? Any other thoughts, comments, questions before I keep going? 
Willy Wonka. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. That's right. When, he, when it comes to Isaiah, he's like, all right, do, do what, most, what, uh, what, most you, what mo you most desire. Do what you most desire. And what you most desire is, is, is not that you see, not that you perceive, not that you understand. So I'm going to shut your eyes. Willy Wonka, that's a good, uh, good parallel. Okay, so um, where was I here? What's the next step? What's the next thing that identifies us as a Christian? The next thing we, we, we can't do uh, without, if we're going to be called Christian, that would be hope. Comes also courtesy of verse 13 as well. Let's look at that again. It covers uh, the truth we just spoke of. Then we read of the payoff and the rest of verse 13. Nope, that's not it. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Christianity gives you hope. And the word hope in the Bible... Uh, means something much stronger than the word hope in English. In English, when we talk about hope, it's, uh, it's with a certain uncertainty. I hope this happens, right? Uh, I hope that's true. Uh, in the Bible, the word hope is something much stronger. The biblical definition of hope is, is a, is a life-shaping certainty about your future. In, in Hebrews 9, 11, the author speaks of the full assurance of hope. The hope that the Christian has is a guarantee, it's a guarantee that Paul speaks of here in, in Ephesians, the seal of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance. Human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. We can't help ourselves. That, that means how you live in the present is inevitably shaped by what you believe about the future. You can't avoid that. I hope you stick around for the sermon. I got double duty today. I'm teaching here today and I'm preaching. And I have this great illustration that I hope you'll stick around for. I'm not going to tell it to you now. No spoilers. Sorry. But what you believe about your, to be true about your future has an immediate impact on how you receive your present circumstances, especially suffering. That's what we're going to talk about in the, in the sermon. But as a quick example, how many of you have ever been facing a tough week ahead of you but knowing right after that tough week, you have weeks of vacation waiting for you. Isn't that great? That happens to describe my situation right now. I know I got a tough week ahead of me, but guess where I'm going to be in a week? I'm going to be on a beach with a fruity cocktail in my hand. That means whatever happens to me this week, you know, I'm going to take it with understanding that that's okay. In a couple of days, I know where I'm going to be. I know where I'm going to be, right? Enjoying that fruity cocktail. What you believe to be true about your future has an immediate impact on how you receive your present circumstances. This is what hope is for the Christian. It's the certainty of knowing the glory that awaits you. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and his presence in your heart is the seal. It's the guarantee of your inheritance. It's like Paul is telling the church, frame your thoughts around that. Frame your thoughts around the idea that you have possession of an inheritance far greater than you deserve. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you, do you let that shape the way you go through your day? What you, what you know to be true about your future, that's going to impact on how I receive something like, I got to have triple bypass surgery today. That's going to shape your future. What you understand about your future shapes the way you think about your, your present reality. Today is Father's Day, and uh, it's a bittersweet day for me now because I lost my father, as I know a number of you have as well. Not only have I lost my father, but it happened awfully close to Father's Day. And, it, and as hard as that's been for me, you can multiply that times 100 for my mother, who was married to him for more than 50 years. 
And, and to add insult to injury, we lost my, my grandmother the month after my father. So just over in a month's time, she lost her husband and, and her, her, her mom. How do you put one foot in front of the other after that? The answer is you don't. You don't, if not for the fact that there is hope. If not for the fact that you have a Holy Spirit that testifies to the fact that one day you'll be reunited as a part of the body of Christ. That's how you put one foot in front of the other. I honestly don't know how people do it otherwise. I don't know how people go through things like that without, without some sort of eternal hope. When you're marked with the Holy Spirit and given the guarantee of the inheritance, it affects and colors every aspect of your life. When you come to terms with the fact that, as we read last week in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. When you come to terms with that, when you come to terms with this, with, when that idea sinks in, there's hope in all situations. Not just hope in death, but there's, there's hope in everything. There, there, it, there begins the understanding that you're, you're not just dealing with, with, with the curveballs that life throws at you. Rather, it's what God Almighty is walking you through to prepare you for and make you into something make you into the image that he desires. There are no accidents. There's only what he prepares you for. Whatever comes at you is not a result of some cosmic accident. There, there, there's real sanctifying purposes behind every ordered step you walk. Just yesterday, uh, we were with some friends at the lake, and uh, first ride of the day, my uh, older son, he had a little bit of a collision on the tube and cut his chin open. And so we had to stop right there and... Uh, take him to the, the clinic um, while the rest of the folks stayed behind. The I took my son to the clinic. And uh, my younger son, because it was my younger son's foot that, that got him in the, in the chin, <laughs> uh, he felt terrible. He felt awful. And then, and then my, my older son even felt awful because, Dad, I know you wanted to be on the lake today. But I'm like, it's, this is what I signed up for. When you sign up to be a dad, you sign up, unfortunately, for a couple of trips to the ER once in a while, right? And it's okay. It's fine. This is, this is all good. This is all, we, we, I, I told them, I'm glad you didn't lose any teeth. I'm glad you didn't get a concussion. You know what? You, you frame your thoughts around everything like that because you know that nothing is by accident. This is, even, even this was in God's design for you, to, for you to bust your chin open and get a few stitches. That's all, it's, all, it's all part of his sovereign will. And he's leading us. So none of this is for nothing. It's all for good. All of it for good. So that's the second mark of the Christian hope. It begins with the, with, the, with the big things in life like salvation. And then you realize it filters down to every single corner of your life. There's nothing. There's nothing that you encounter that is not, met by, that is not given to you by sovereign design. Do you believe that? I hope so. I hope you do. The second mark. That's the second one. Um, and finally, we've got glory. Any comments on hope? you have any thoughts on that before we move on? about the hope, again, that not only pertains to your future, but again, that, that affects every corner of your life. Comments, thoughts, questions, anything? Okay. Stop me if you, if you, if you, want, if you have a comment. H Howard? I can always count on Howard. Yes! <laughs> no. Take this. It's from a, a tribe. This is the song... Mm -hmm. in India, where the gospel had come, that most of that group had not believed, but mm -hmm. his family believes and trusts Christ. 
no turning back. Even death itself, even death itself is not enough to, to persuade you to, to abandon the hope, the abandon the hope that the Holy Spirit has put in there. That's incredible. I, I'm gonna make, that's uh, going to make me want to look up that, uh, uh, that story. Thanks, Howard. Um, okay, finally, glory. Let's talk about glory. Uh, this is verse 14, right? Uh, talking about who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And the inheritance, we're talking about future glory until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, the, the word glory here is used all throughout the chapter. And it's really quite profound because it's in glory where we realize how great the Father's love is for us. Do you see what this verse is saying? The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. We receive the, we receive the inheritance and he receives glory. We receive the inheritance, he receives glory. If he receives glory as the result of your inheritance, this means you are his treasure. And if that's the case, do you see what that means? This places real, actual value on you. Okay, th this has been part of the Christian Christianity ever since the beginning, back when no one in society had ever heard, heard or, or spoken of identity. Identity is all the rage right now in terms of a, a topic, what everyone's talking about, identity. Today we talk about identity all the time. It, it's my identity, and I want to be my true self. People will say that. What does that actually mean, right? People are trying to point to their identity, and that's where they find value. That's where they try and find value. How do we help people who struggle with identity, and they don't find value in it? Because at some point you will. If that's what you're hanging your hat on, if you're hanging your hat on identity, at some point it's going to fail you. At some point you're going to discover it's not enough. So what do you tell them? What do you tell people in that situation? Separate yourself from the Christian worldview for a moment. And if someone comes to you with, with not finding identity, value in their identity, where do you go with that? What do you tell them? We tell them things like, find your talents. What are you good at? right? Lose weight. Set some goals. Uh, be around people who affirm you. Pamper yourself. Be good to yourself. Well, those things are like a band-aid on a busted open chin. <laughs> because believe me, we thought about that yesterday. Can this be healed with a band-aid? No, it cannot. This is going to, and we even were texting our, our Laura Howard, who's a, who's a nurse a practitioner, or a, is that what she is? Um, basically a doctor. And uh, we said, what do you think? She's like, go get stitches. <laughs> go get stitches. Don't put a Band-Aid on it, right? That's what, that's what telling people, it's worse though. It's like putting a, putting a Band-Aid on a brain hemorrhage. Finding, finding value in your identity. You know, set some goals for yourself. Be good to yourself. You're going to fail at that. That will come to an end. That will come to an end. Okay, want to know something better to tell someone who struggles with their identity? Say, you're a treasure of God. You're a treasure of God. When the God of the universe looks at you, he has immense affection for you. The omnipotent of the universe is willing to use his power to protect you and rescue you, rescue at the, at the cost of his son's life. That's your value. If you don't grasp that, if you're a Christian, you don't grasp that, you're going to be like everyone else. Everyone else around you is scrounging for compliments and approval 
You'll be longing for acclaim and recognition. You'll always be nervous and, and discontent. And the good news is you don't have to wrestle with that anymore. You don't have to do it. Not if you understand this. Understanding this doesn't happen overnight either. It, it's a, it does increase over the course of your life. As, as you sanctify, as you're sanctified in Christ, as you understand this more and more, it grows in you. And you think less and less of man's approval because you realize the glory that he has in you. You're his possession. You have unconditional approval. What could be better? What additional need for approval could there possibly be? In Romans 8, 18 and following, uh, Paul tells us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject of futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. What does that mean? What is Paul saying there? Tim Keller, who, who says what that means on the, is on the last day of history, a glory will descend on people who are in Christ. A glory so perfect, so powerful, and so transforming that the blast of beauty will cleanse the whole universe with what's wrong with it. There will be a glory that comes down on us that is so incredible that just the fallout of the glory and beauty that comes down into, into us is going to cleanse the universe and make everything in the world good. It means everything wrong with you will be gone and everything wrong with the world will be gone. All death, all decay, all suffering, all disease, all imperfection will be gone because of this. That's the glory that awaits us, his glory. That's where we find hope. That's where we find value. And, and nothing that the world can prop up or build up can compare with that, not in a zillion years. The Holy Spirit, when he comes into your life, when you believe in Jesus Christ, is actually the first installment of that very same glory. And it's in you now. It's in you now. Uh, let, me, let me wrap up with this. Uh, this is worth giving up anything. This kind of hope is worth giving up anything. There's nothing you shouldn't be willing to give up in order to partake of this, this future glory. This kind of hope, this kind of power, this kind of glory, there, if there really is a God who's the source of, of all beauty and joy, he will come into you if you know him. If there's even a chance, this is what Tim Keller says, if there's a chance that all that is available through Jesus Christ, you should be willing to lose anything in order to get that. Uh, one final thought. And then, then we'll close. Uh, John Newton said, If you understand your future glory, it will make the best times leavable and the worst times bearable. That's your hope. Let that, uh, let that frame your, your thoughts throughout the week and, and run with that. Uh, and I'm going to stop there because uh, i got a sermon to preach. But uh, what, what questions can we entertain or comments do you have before we, we close and roll the TV out of here? Mm -hmm. Because it, well, it got me thinking. Um, he said he liked the utility bill comment. Yeah. So, like, if you think about your sin as using gas or electricity or whatever, you're thinking. What oh, impact? Well, I'm just going to be mm -hmm. good enough so that when I get to the end, I will save up enough to pay the bill. And then when you get there, you figure out, oh my gosh, I used up way 
Yeah. No idea. No idea. And, and uh, again, th that was that sort of again. I know it sounds uh, like I'm a psycho, but that's sort of the the uh, the uneasiness I feel with with the utility bill. I never really know. I never really know where I stand. I really I don't know how much power I use in any given day, or gas, or water. You know, and, and again, I know many Christians who feel that same struggle. Well, maybe we don't call them Christians yet because they don't really understand yet. Maybe they don't fully understand yet what, what that is. They're still trying to go through life not understanding, well, have I done enough to pay this off? You know, have I done enough? Because I, I don't know what my total bill is going to be like once I get, get up uh, uh, to have it. You, you guess what? You're not going to have a bill. It's paid. Paid in full. Paid in full. There's no more anxiety. No more anxiety. That's the hope that we're speaking of here. Someone else? Comments? Thank you for tying that back together. Yes, sir. I'm going to bring the microphone to you. I'll use my voice. All right. Now go ahead. Use it. And that's one of the wonders of belief is that it necessarily, you know, once, once the Holy Spirit occupies your heart, it necessarily produces a change. There's, some, there's a natural byproduct that comes along with that. It's a, it's, a, it's, a vis, it's a visible evidence that you do believe, that you do actually hear. Uh, and again, that's, um, that comes with the territory. That's part of it. Someone else? Comments? Thoughts? Yes? Hold on, hold on. Phil Donahue coming here with a mic. Mm-hmm. And why I always wanted to not catch my parents, but I wanted to have a great example. Examples were so important to yeah. me. And that's, I think, why we always hold other Christians and mm -hmm. to a high account. Because of the example? Yeah. It's funny. That's a good comment, knowing that Spencer is your son, too. I know. I don't know. <laughs> how, how was he as a listener? Did he hear very well? <laughs> Someone else? All right, let me close this. Uh, if, there are no, if there is nothing else, let me, uh, and if I could get a volunteer or two to help uh, this unwieldy t TV, to, you don't mind rolling it back into the conference room here, but let's, let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. Uh, thank you for your, your word. Thank you for the hope that you've given us. And, and Father, help us to, to really uh, take this home with us and, and, and ponder it. Uh, let it sink in. Uh, let it seep into our soul so that we can leave here knowing that uh, whatever I encounter, whatever I face, uh, whatever may befall me, uh, my value comes from you. Uh, you are what gives me hope. You are what gives me reassurance. And, uh, and nothing else can compare. Uh, help us to abandon it all for your sake. Uh, thank you, Father. Thank you that you loved us. Uh, thank you that you abandoned it all for, um, in, in Jesus Christ, that you abandoned it all for, for us, for our sake. Uh, go with us now. And thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.